Welcome to this first episode of Mental Illness Life. My name is Brooke and I live with mental illness. I have successfully for most of my adult life. The reason why I want to do this, uh, other than feeling that it's extremely necessary, uh, I kind of have always wanted to tell my story and a lot of my friends have said, oh, you should write a book or, you know, somehow tell your story, writing it out. But then I realized I'm way better at speaking. So here we go, podcast. So lately, there's been a lot in Idaho, um, just some articles written about in the legislature and in healthcare um, suicide prevention. And I think I read the other day the number like $800 million being put towards suicide prevention. And honestly, this makes me very, very nervous. Um, it's that we're putting all of this effort into something that I really believe is almost unpreventable. Uh, I think a lot of you are going to understand this quite a bit, and you've probably all known someone or known of someone who has committed suicide, somebody who's maybe, you know, one or two removed from you, a couple of degrees of separation. Uh, you know someone who's committed suicide. And if you haven't, then that's amazing. I'm going to tell you about this, that it's profoundly difficult to understand why they would why they would do that to someone why they would do that to their family why they would do that to their friends but i'm here to tell you that at the time that person truly truly believes that they are doing the world a favor that they, they really believe that they're actually helping the rest of their family members their friends to not have to deal with them anymore so i'm not exactly sure what the powers that be are trying to do and how they define suicide prevention. But I'd love to have a conversation with them because, you know, does it mean that it's like having those last tools that someone could grasp for before they go grab a gun? Because I don't believe that, and I'm sure this is extremely controversial and goes against what most people in those fields believe, but if someone's gonna kill themselves, they're gonna kill themselves. And you know, obviously there's a few times where they will reach out and cry for help, so to speak, um, and then get the help they need or, or somebody will stumble upon it and that person will be saved. Well, I had a I had a conversation with some girlfriends today, actually, about doing this podcast. And they, of course, immediately start telling stories of people they know that or like heard of that they hear voices or they tell their therapist that they're convinced they've had sex with aliens or one guy that talks to himself as he walks around downtown, you know, like these these uh, elaborate stories of, of crazy people. And I'm here to tell you that that's all a bunch of fucking bullshit. Uh, it does happen, but it's so rare. But those are the things you hear about. You don't hear about me and, and those people who are living successfully with mental illness. They're happy. Um, so I'm here to talk about those things that pertain to my life. And, and I just hope to help at least a few people understand that that there is no stigma. Whether there is currently, we need to break that and understand that there shouldn't be. But with this podcast, with what I'm saying and you, my audience listening, there's no stigma here with me. My therapist and my psychiatrist talk about this um, and I've talked about it with a lot of people that it's just like having any disease like diabetes or you know kidney disease. I mean, mental illness is, is a pretty severe disease. It, you know, it's not right now the same, treated the same as one of these other diseases I just mentioned. 
like walking into the doctor and saying, you know, these are my symptoms. Please help me. What do I do about this? Um, and that's how I feel about my mental illness. I see my doctor um, usually every three months or so, and she and we regulate my medication. I see my therapist once a week. Um, I do believe that therapy is uh, not supposed to be meant for long term. And we can get into that for sure. But it's something that I would really love to be able to help the general public as well, uh, as well as healthcare providers to lessen the stigma and make it okay to, you know, talk to your general practitioner and then have it be, you know, a, a normal process to be uh, referred to a psychiatrist or re- be referred to a therapist. And when people talk about mental health days, that should be a thing. And you should be very comfortable with taking those mental health days and understanding what that means to your employer and vice versa. So, you know, if I can just help a few people understand that there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with having mental illness. What's wrong is not getting it treated and not taking the time to go, you know, something's not right here and I need to check it out. And we're living in a time right now that's so much more accepting of so many things. But this in particular that, you know, even 10 or 20 years ago, it was uh, it was 20 years ago when I knew something was wrong and I had no idea, no outlet. Uh, I felt like there was nothing I could do and I was misdiagnosed and I was under-medicated and I was over-medicated. So this is not an easy thing. But nowadays, you know, it's 2019. There are so many tools available. There are so many doctors available and there's so many resources available to understand what's happening to you and where you can go to get help. You know, back to this suicide prevention, I'm hoping that what they're getting at is you know, catching it is catching it early at the core, at the beginning of the stage that let's say you lose your job or get divorced or you're just, you know, feeling fucking sad. Like you just feel awful. You catch it. Then, you know, you make sure that there's a like a questionnaire when you go in for a health screening. Are you feeling bad? You know, what does this look like? And make it a priority because our mental health can cause so many other problems, like on the physical side of things. Because of one of my diagnoses, I have adrenal fatigue and suffer from migraines that causes um, so many, so many other problems. So it's definitely an issue where it goes from the top down, uh, if you will, or of course, like from your head down. But I really hope that that's what they're getting at is to get to these things first before it even gets to the contemplation of suicide. Because again, as controversial as this thing is going to be, I don't believe that a person who's set on killing themselves is going to benefit from anything the state or their healthcare provider is going to offer a lot of times. I know you guys have seen this before, but a lot of times it's just that you don't see it coming. And the people in my life who I see struggling or, you know, some of the times when people are just having a fucking bad day, those are the people that I feel like I can help because of telling my story and telling how debilitating it can be, but then how easy it can be once you find the right thing that works for you. I mean, it's not an easy thing. It's just like being on dialysis or, you know, having to inject yourself with insulin. Those things are not easy. Neither is going through and taking the initiative to find what's wrong and ask for help and go on the medication. There's this TED talk out there, you've gotta watch it. It's by David Anderson called Your Brain is More Than a Bag of Chemicals. And he talks about how the mental illness medication that they don't really know how they work. They just don't know how they affect the brain and it's sort of like a chemical soup. And that when 
it's sort of like pouring motor oil over an engine. Like some of it gets in the spot that it needs to, and then some of it just kind of like trickles all over. You should give it a listen. He discusses his research done on fruit flies. It's really cool. So you really, you have to figure out what works. Of course, that's some, some of this medication, you know, is really, really potent. When I was first misdiagnosed, I was over-medicated and I became like a zombie. But then when we finally got it right, it was life-changing. So I'm going to tell you my story and talk to you about the early days of my mental illness and my diagnoses and how they've been off quite a few times in the last 20 years uh, with the meds that I take, the things that I feel like saved my life, uh, my therapy. And then finally, I'm going to talk to you about my friendships, which will probably make me cry because they're all such fucking amazing people. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've all heard a thousand times, but you've got to surround yourself with people who care about you and can laugh with you. And all the shit that goes on can be understanding when you just want to crawl into bed for a week and they don't hear from you, but they know you're going to be okay because you've you've been open with them and they're the people that you trust and they know you're going to be okay. They just know you need a break. Um, some of them will come check on you and that's okay too. You just have to make sure you are reassuring them. So I'm going to reiterate that probably every episode that surrounding with those people, not only that, but getting rid of those toxic relationships. Uh, I'll talk about blood family and how that has been a huge part of my diagnoses. So getting right into that, I am 42 years old and my childhood was extremely traumatic. Uh, I can get in, I will get in depth with this in another episode, but it was a great deal of emotional trauma, a lot of verbal abuse for quite a few years. And there was some physical abuse and this was all done by my biological mother. So as you can imagine, it's, it fucked with me hard and some of the things I don't remember and some I do I've blocked them out there were you know sometimes where some of the things said you know it really boils down to like she couldn't nurture me she just couldn't love me the way I needed and I'm sure this is like classic and it's what a lot of people go through and maybe they're not affected like I was but you've got to remember that the mind is made up so differently and can be affected by certain triggers just based on biological factors all of us are so different that the same trauma could affect me differently than it could affect, let's say, a guy or like my brother was treated a different way. But, you know, there was still a little bit of a problem there. But of course, I can't speak to his mindset. You know, like what happened to him? Only me I can speak to. And, you know, um, my father, like, I feel like he never really protected me. He didn't really know what to do, to be honest. Uh, and at the same time, the two of them were fighting so hard that I think he just wanted to check out and it was totally understandable. So I, finally, when they split and I lived with my dad the last part of high school and then, you know, really cut ties with her. Uh, and I remember being like 14 or 15 and my dad, like he and I were like moving out of the house and she was just standing in the kitchen watching us with this, you know, scowl. And I remember the phone would ring <laughs> Remember back, like, no cell phones. It was just the house phone. No caller ID either. I think that was, like, the mid-80s. Yeah, it would have had to have been early 80s. So I would answer the phone, and it would be one of her church friends telling me that I was this horrible child abandoning my mother. And, again, it was traumatizing 
to someone that age. So again, I think my dad just kind of checked out and kind of let me do whatever at that point. So to go from this traumatizing living under the thumb of this woman have to all of a sudden having all this freedom, it was, I mean, I think I, you know, it could have been a lot worse. I really, and, and hopefully a lot of my high school friends will be listening to this because God bless Facebook, uh, that I'm still friends with so many people. We get to like go back and forth and it's nice to see those memories and it's just, it's so nice. I had a great last couple of years of high school and I don't think any of them really knew what was going on with me and what I was going through. But just like them being there and, you know, us always having a good time, we just had a good time. You know who you are listening to this. You know who you are. We just all were laughing and having a great time. And then I think it was right out, maybe senior year is when I first started partying. Um, And again, this is going into like another episode that I'm going to go into talking about self-medicating and how partying and raves and clubs, uh, club nights and like ecstasy and cocaine, all of that, I believe, truly saved my life at that time. Um, And of course, it's going to be controversial, but just bear with me because there's, you know, there's some merit to it for sure. So... So all that started happening at that age. But during that time, a year after high school, I got accepted to a university, uh, one of the state universities in Illinois. I should say I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Then I lived in the city downtown for a year after high school. During those times that I'm talking about, it was really heavy, heavy partying. And then I was able to put that a little bit on hold and was accepted in the computer science school at one of the uh, universities. So, you know, at that point is when I knew, boy, I'm really intelligent and I love math and I love computers and this is so cool. And I love science. And that didn't, you know, what's funny is it didn't stop me from going down and, um, you know, going to the clubs and we would drive about an hour and a half to get downtown Chicago from where we went to school. And then, um, you know, during the summers too, I mean, we partied our faces off and I'll never regret that. It was some of the best times. I mean, yeah, there were some pretty hardcore, like we would just be fucking strung out. I mean, it was hardcore. And uh, maybe some of you are listening that I partied with back in the day and you're probably nodding your head and smiling and just like, yeah, that was fucking fun. Just like dancing in front of the speakers, like all night on a just total ecstasy high back when we didn't have social media. There's no proof of it all. (laughs) So probably on the next episode, I'll go really in depth about that scene and how I feel like that that truly saved my life. But at that point, I still really hadn't dug into the root of the problem for me, because to be honest, to do that to yourself, to put that many drugs into your body, you really don't care for yourself as much as, you know, somebody who's like exercising every day and, you know, eating kale and like drinking fucking water. Yeah, we weren't doing that. So I don't I don't even think I was eating much, to be honest. But again, for another episode. So when I was kind of like all of that life fizzled out at about 28, I was I was super lost and I had just lost a contract IT job that was paying quite a bit of money. And I met my son's father, who was in Chicago at the time, and A week later, I got on a plane, packed two bags, and he brought me to Idaho. 
and I knew no one. And let's just put it this way. He brought me to Idaho and I'll always have like such respect for him for, for doing that. Um, it was absolutely what I needed to do. He saved me from myself, from my parents, from this toxic life that I was living there and brought me to this little, little place called Boise, Idaho and was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. He also, you know, we of course didn't plan, but uh, had a child nine months later. And that was the number one thing that grew me up quick. Um, I didn't know what I was fucking doing. I moved down here and I didn't know anyone. We didn't stay together, but we raised our child. Now we've got a good situation. But you know, before, um, before I had moved here, like in my twenties, uh, every once in a while I would go to my doctor and be like, you know, I'm really fucked up. And, and what can we do about this? I, I don't sleep, you know, like what is happening? And I don't really remember exactly. I think at one point they put me on Paxil and they, it just didn't work for me. And because I remember when I moved here, I was still taking it and got pregnant. And at that time they didn't know it was like bad for the baby. So they just said to keep taking it because, you know, the benefits outweigh the side effects. Um, and so after the pregnancy, I don't feel like it was really postpartum depression. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to stay home with Broden, my son for a while. Um, actually I lived with his great grandparents, which was such a blessing to me. And I was able to really focus on being a mom. Um, and during that time, getting to know his dad's family who have all become my new adopted family. And again, surrounding yourself with those people that care about you and those people that you can really, really trust. It was a huge part of my, you know, the beginning to me being able to manage this illness. Um, so I'm going to tell you my story, uh, my diagnoses, my medications, my therapy, and the people I've decided to surround myself with. Um, this is not about, oh, there's a specific drug for you. And then you'll know, like, it's a magic pill. I mean, come on, that's fucking ridiculous. So when I started working, you know, after, after having my son, things got a little more stressful, a little more difficult. But again, I removed myself from those toxic relationships so that in itself was helping my mental illness. So when he, my son was about two, I think like I had switched jobs or something happened. I remember just being totally overwhelmed. So I did go to one doctor's office and I, like, I remember filling out all the forms and, you know, they, they read off all the, the forms. They don't really talk to you much. It's just, you know, checking out boxes. And I remember, uh, he came back with a diagnosis of bipolar one, uh, and nothing else. And as you'll see later, when I talk about my diagnoses, I do not have bipolar one. So when you're misdiagnosed, you're also over-medicated. And you could be under-medicated, but in my case, definitely over-medicated. He put me on some very powerful drugs. I was taking Seroquel and Abilify, and it knocked me the fuck out. I mean, I was like on the bed trying to sleep, or I was like dead asleep. I felt like I couldn't move my arms. I mean, it was just like being dead. I couldn't get up like to pick up my kid. And I remember thinking, this is not it. <laughs> this can't be fucking right. Like, this is not helping. So, again, you know, talk about these stories with you. To talk about these stories with you, it, it did not come easy. I had to fight back against some of these things because, again, 
I knew, I'm telling you now that this is a new process in the world. Like the psychiatrists and doctors don't exactly know how these medications even work. Uh, obviously that was not the right medication for me. And so I immediately went off of it and just said, you know, give me like an antidepressant or a Paxil or an SSRI or something. And because I think part of this too is to explain that I love myself enough to want to be okay. That's a big, big part of having mental illness is to own it. Love yourself enough to want to be okay. I want to be a functioning member of society. I want to be happy. I, I don't want to be in a panic. I want to be in a place where I know that these tools are out there so you can, you know, get to a point where you love yourself enough where you where you can do this. You're not just enjoying the depression. I know some of you really enjoy being fucked up and sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. So this podcast is not for you. This is for those people who can honestly say they care enough about themselves to go do something about it. Go do something about the depression. Go do something about the anxiety because the tools are fucking out there. I am proof of that. And I have to say, I have to tell you that about the suicide thing, I have never contemplated suicide ever. And I have severe mental illness, but I've never contemplated suicide. There is a very big difference between feeling down sometimes and feeling like, God, take me now. And that's valid. But to those of you who understand this, I'm telling those of you who don't, that someone who is suicidal honestly has decided and that's it. It's a done deal. It's a decision. They are making plans to do it. There's probably no talking them out of it. And so the difference between that and what I'm talking about is the thoughts of depression of, you know, uh, I wish I could just be gone. Everything would be great. All my debt would be wiped out. You know, everybody would be so much better without my bullshit in their life. But that's very different. That just goes along with how you're feeling shitty about yourself. So to, you know, once all of that happened, then I started my job, my corporate job. And then a couple of years into it was when it was happening where I thought something is really wrong. Um, it, the job got so monotonous and I was living in this like little duplex in the north end of Boise, the cutest little place. Um, I love Idaho so much. Again, another reason why I'm able to successfully live with mental illness, because I live in such a place that is so quiet and so few crimes. I remember laying on the couch after work for like a week. I'd come home from work. I remember um, my son was at his dad's that week and I can see this vividly. I would just lay on the couch and was like, I would just like curl up and maybe have the TV on, maybe not. And literally would not answer the phone, wouldn't eat for a few days. And in the, in itself, that was comforting to me. I know some of you listening to this are maybe in that spot where it's just more comfortable to just not talk to anyone and just go to sleep. And that my friends is depression. And you, you know, sometimes you just, it just, you know, comfortable blanket. Um, but for me at that point, I realized something is, was very wrong. Um, just something was very, very wrong. Um, at that point I started having panic attacks and, you know, I had known what those were before. I'd had them before. I know what it's like to have anxiety. Um, I've always known what it's like to have your heart racing uh, kind of unnaturally. So all of this happening at the same time was fucking alarming. Um, so I reached out. I got a referral. And a week later, I was sitting in the office of the person who would forever change my life. Um, I started telling her 
my whole story. I just, and I remember I could not stop crying. I just like let it out. I, it was so overwhelming. I couldn't breathe. And I just told the story of my childhood as briefly as I could. Um, and then I remember after a good 20 minutes or so, she just looked at me and said, Brooke, you have PTSD. She said, I'm so sorry that no one's seen that. And you must have been in so much pain for so long and not, and just not known like what was really wrong. Um, and, and just told me that I was going to be okay. Like I just needed somebody to tell me that I was going to be okay. Um, and then she hands me a prescription for Lamictal. If, if for those of you who don't know what that is, it's actually an anti-seizure medication. Um, and it's also used to treat bipolar, uh, in the sense that it's used to like delay the time to occurrence of mood episodes. So depression, mania, hypomania, mixed episodes, um, it's just, it's used to sort of level you off to, you know, in between those, those periods, because again, there's no cure for mental illness. There's no cure for bipolar. Um, there is only maintenance and we want to be able to manage it like any other illness. And that's what these drugs do. And so technically I was also prescribed talk therapy, um, EMDR specifically, and what that stands for is eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Uh, say that 10 times real fast. <laughs> I almost couldn't say it. Uh, and I'm going to get way into that in the next few episodes. It really is no joke. Um, it's fucking It's unbelievably intense. Um, it, it's used for war veterans and rape victims and, and trauma victims in general. Um, and then over the years, I've, I've added other different medications, some for anxiety, some for depression, all of which regulated by my doctor um, for what was happening in my life at the time. And in another episode, I'm going to talk to you about lithium. It's super intense sounding. It's an intense drug. Um, probably seen, you know, TV shows or movies where somebody takes lithium and they're like, you know, laid out. But, you know, there's different there's just different dosages of it, of course. Um, and it, it saved my life a second time. I used that, um, just after my divorce and I was kind of homeless at that time as well. So I still take it and I'll take it as long as it's needed. And it, uh, is one of the things that helps me lead a, a, a normal life, whatever, you know, normal means to, to each person. Um, so listen, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm just someone who's very motivated to remove the stigma around mental illness and seeking help for it. Cause that's really the whole thing is, yeah, there's a stigma around like mental illness and talking about it and what it is. And, oh, that guy had it. No, that guy shot up a school and oh, this and that. But what, what I really want to get to the point of is you feel comfortable with saying, Hey, there's something wrong and I need to go to the doctor. And like the doctor making you feel like that this is totally fine. You coming in and talking about how you feel and we're going to get you to the right place. And hopefully it makes a difference in the sense that we can get some actual like walk-in clinics because I feel like that's even more needed. Um, and then I am going to reiterate that if you are comfortable in your mental illness, this podcast is not for you because uh, you know who you are. Like some of you are just you're good with like being in the darkness. And as much as I wish I could 
pull you out of that, it, that's your choice. It's your life. And um, to quote my favorite self-love author, CCB, uh, go follow her on social media. She's at the Crimson Kiss. And she says, if you want to be angry, miserable, and bitter all the time, do you, boo. Go drink from the fountain of low vibrations and live, in, live your best negative-ass life all you want. Just please stay the fuck away from me. Thanks. Yeah, girl, that's totally it. <laughs> and so I'll leave you with this, this uh, cool story. I had a friend in high school whose grandma had inv- advanced Alzheimer's and was in a home for many, many years. Her mom would go in and brush her hair and do her makeup and talk to her every day. And I remember thinking, that's why grandma won't just go peacefully because, she, you know, her daughter just keeps going in and her sweet energy is there um, every day. And then the day that she died, after not speaking for uh, over seven years, she sat up, looked at her daughter, put her hand on her cheek and said, just be nice, and then passed away peacefully. And that, my friends, I believe is the true meaning of life. Just be nice to one another. Everything else is just noise. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this first episode of Mental Illness Life. In the upcoming episodes, I'm going to talk about self-medicating drug use, partying to stay sane. I'll be interviewing my therapist. She's so cool. I'll be talking with my psychiatrist about what people can expect from new medication. So I hope that you come back and join me.